Hi, I'm Alicia Michalaisic-Gonzalez, an emergency physician and the clinical training lead for the California Bridge Program. And this is episode six of our Emerging Trends training series, Case Studies in Precipitated Withdrawal. Today, backed by popular demand, we are joined by one of our clinical experts, Dr. Ed Pilar, to dive deeper into the topic of precipitated withdrawal by reviewing some real-world case examples. This audio was recorded during a live virtual training session in April of 2022. So please note that any brand names used by myself or Dr. Pilar are just out of habit and neither of us has any financial disclosures. Let's start by re-meeting our guest, Dr. Ed Pilar. Good day, everybody, wherever you might be tuning in from. Uh, I'm Ed Pilar. I am uh, from Arrowhead Regional Medical Center in San Bernardino, California. I'm emergency medicine trained and boarded uh, from Loma Linda University. I work in the ERs and attending at ARMC. I'm also board certified in addiction medicine, where I run the, uh, the county MAT Bridge program in a community clinic, as well as the local county correctional institution. And I am uh, privileged to be here. Thank you. Not not a very busy guy at all. You great? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Thank you for making it's, the it's time. A, it's a load worth lifting, you know. Awesome. Yeah. So, in case you missed that 30 minute session that we did about precipitated withdrawal, a couple of important take home points that we covered that I just want to make sure everyone here knows. The first one was. Most of the time when people talk about fear of precipitated withdrawal or that they've seen it or they experienced it, what we were actually talking about is untreated or incompletely treated withdrawal. True precipitated withdrawal is very rare. So when we talk about that in these cases, I want to remind everybody this is not a common occurrence. Um, and when it does happen, uh, it's okay. All right. It's okay. Don't be afraid of it. We're going to help you. Secondly, remember that withdrawal is not always perfectly smooth and painless, right? So getting worsening symptoms or not feeling great in the process can be normal. That's not precipitated withdrawal. Finally, the treatment when you do need it is bup and more bup. Bup and more bup. Give more buprenorphine. Get yourself out of it with more buprenorphine. Eventually, you'll get there. And it often can be helpful to give a dose of a benzodiazepine like Ativan or lorazepam upfront. Those were our main take-home points. So we're going to dive right on into a case and just see what questions come up. Feel free to, as always, share them in the chat with us, and we'll see if we can incorporate them today. So let's talk about like, okay, maybe Ed. Uh, let's say like a guy, maybe a 45-year-old guy comes in. You know, initially he uh, was seen for, he's here for withdrawal. He was pretty upfront about it. He saw the awesome sign in your lobby that said, are you here, you know, for, for opioid use disorder? Do you want help? And he says, yeah, you know, I've been using like two grams of fentanyl a day for months. Um, and my last use was uh, yesterday morning. And now I feel terrible. And you look at him and like, clearly he's not feeling very well. There's some obvious objective signs of withdrawal. It's a pretty easy kind of slam dunk case. Um, and it's a busy day in the ER. So you do the right thing and you say, okay, uh, go ahead and give the patient, you know, eight or 16 milligrams of buprenorphine. Uh, and then we'll get him in a room when we can but your lobby's really full. And like the nurse took a verbal. And then while you were in the back, because the code came in, you know, the patient's waiting and they didn't get the boop right away and he's getting worse and he's in a lot of pain and he just wants to be out of pain. So he sneaks off to the bathroom and the patient's like, you know what? I'm just going to use a little bit because this is terrible. Like I cannot wait. I want the treatment, but I just, I need to do something to help myself. Uses some fentanyl, comes back out. Now it's a different nurse. So she doesn't know how he looked before, you know, pulls him into a room, gives him the buprenorphine, 
Finally, he gets into a room and now the nurse comes to get you because she says, hey, this guy in room eight has really bad chest pain. And so you go in to see what's up with the chest pain. And there he is. And he's sweaty and agitated in a ton of pain, obviously miserable and looks way worse than when you first saw him. What is this? And wh- what do you do as the, as the clinician? Yeah, so like that that happens more than we know, um, and it, it to me it um, it points to the, the importance of a, a connection with the patient, or as Rebecca likes to call it, verbicane, which I think is a great a great uh, term for that, uh, because the, the the first thing that I got to try and do is establish that connection and trust back with the patient, and allow me, him to give me the permission to give him more of the same medicine that he is convinced caused us to put him into withdrawal. And uh, again, if there's a couple of just talking points or take-home points from this this series, it's connections greater than communication, more important, and bup, and more bup, and more bup. That is, that's the, that's a take-home point. Uh, We just did a, we just reviewed a case, our our COE uh, group, where a patient received 60 milligrams or so of buprenorphine during his ED course and ultimately like 80 milligrams of buprenorphine. 80 milligrams of buprenorphine. Wow. And and safely and uh, came out on the other side much, much better back into the bridge program. And so far, so good. Uh, But there's really no upper limit that we know of. Uh, And as, as you have heard us say on the, in the first, um, uh, webinar uh, that, you know, we have cases of 40, 50 milligrams of buprenorphine and above. Wow. So more buprenorphine. And uh, sometimes I find a, a, a little tincture of benzo in there uh, to help with the, the secondary anxiety that goes along with that. So you go in, you see this guy and you, first thing you're going to do is the verbicane, talk to them, say, hey, what happened? You know, figure it out and then say, I need you to trust me that we're going to get through this, right? And, and all that language you talked about in the last um, conversation that we had in this in this series. And then maybe you toss in how, what, how much benzodiazepine are we talking? What kind of dose are, are you usually giving? Uh, I'll tip, well, it, depending on how how symptomatic clinically they look, if, if like this guy by this description, two milligrams. Okay, he's in a monitored situation. And I always reassure not only the patient, but the staff, because sometimes you get the pushback from the nurse. Oh, you know, we're not used to giving all this medication together. It, what the, the combination. And so listen, if, if something happened to this patient that's going to be bad, I want it to happen here in front of me, right? So monitor situation. Yeah, exactly. So we give two milligrams of, you know, say lorazepam or Ativan, common brand name. And then you've, you already gave the guy, say, eight milligrams or 16 milligrams to start. What's your starting dose with buprenorphine in a patient like this who's actually in precipitated withdrawal? Uh, no less than 16. 16 at least. So, yeah, or 20, sometimes 24. W- one potential issue would, you know, this this stuff tastes terrible. If you talk to your patients, you will learn that they can induce nausea. It's not an Altoid. So <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I've had patients where I've given them a big dose and then I come back to see them and Here's, here's a half-digested or dissolved tablet on the pillow because their nausea is so bad. So uh, I'll start with 16, but I'll tell the nurse, pull another 16 because we might be giving this patient another 16 within 30 minutes or so. All right. So two milligrams up front of a lorazepam, Ativan-type medication. 
start with 16 buprenorphine, very low threshold for hitting another 16. And you just kind of titrate yourself out of it, it sounds like. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And I, and I, and I have to keep, again, that verbicane, that connection, you need to allow me to give you more of the medication you think made you worse. But I, you know, we, we've seen this before and we know how to get you out of it. It's that kind of confidence that helps deepen that connection and trust with the patient. Right. And so I think also being able to explain to them, you know, that medicine that I already, that we already gave you that's in your system is not going anywhere. Right. It's, it's, it's stuck in there. And so the best thing we can do is actually give you more of it to get you feeling yeah. better because we can't, you know, taking more fentanyl isn't going to fix your problem right now. You're going to stay feeling like this. Yeah. And sometimes I, I don't try and get too granular in the in the pharmacokinetics, but I'll say this medication is actually knocking off the fentanyl from your brain receptors and protecting it, you know, to get give them a little visual that. You know, what I need to do is saturate your brain. Right. We've got a, um, one of our guests, Gilmore Chung, put this amazing analogy that I want to share with the group because I think we could all learn from this. He'll, he'll use the verbiage to patients. He'll say, this is kind of like when you jump into a really cold pool and right away you feel terrible. But if you get out of the pool, you're just going to get more cold. But if you swim around, you will get warmer. You will feel better. That's very, very similar. That's a wonderful analogy. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'm going to steal that language. Yeah, me, yeah. That's awesome. I, I think I will too. Good. So, so far, it sounds like in most cases, we're talking a little lorazepam, little benzo to help get through it. A lot of connection. Talk to the patient. Recheck them. This is not somebody who you forget about for three hours, right? We're stopping by. How you doing? Yeah. Making sure they're okay. Maybe adding an anti-nausea medication because that flavor is kind of bleh. And don't be afraid of the buprenorphine. Start at 16, maybe even 32. You know, get yourself up there fast. Now, we have, I mentioned this in the chat earlier, and um, Dr. Pilar mentioned this too, COE stands for Centers of Excellence. We have a series of hospitals within California Bridge who are just really comfortable doing medication for addiction treatment and are kind of cutting edge. And they meet regularly to collaborate and talk about what those experts are doing in their practices so that we can learn from them. And in some of their recent uh, visits, I, I know that you guys are talking about some more complex cases. So let's say that this stuff doesn't work. I would say this is probably the end of what everyone agrees to, right? Is more bute, more bute, more bute. But what other options are there? What are some things that our COE teams are doing and kind of, you know, testing that maybe have shown some promise? What are you guys doing out there? Well, we, we have a saying in emergency medicine that everything gets better with ketamine. So that would, that, <laughs> Vitamin that K. Be, that's right. That would be the last bullet point that I would put on our list. Connection is greater than, you know, much more important than communication. Bup and more bup. Um, and then ketamine. Okay. And I was kind of raised on ketamine back in my training at Loma Linda. So we are, we're very comfortable with that. And I think the more you familiarize yourself with the mechanism of how it works, uh, the more you'll understand why. But there are uh, many reasons ketamine works. And we're talking a low dose, uh, 0.3 to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram in an, inf an IV infusion. Uh, but as an NDMA antagonist, which is the prom one of the prominent excitatory players in the GABA system, it, it actually decreases opioid withdrawal symptoms independently of that mu receptor. That's huge. And then it synergistically potentiates the BUP receptor signal. It reverses this fentanyl-induced uh, desensitization that, it has, that fentanyl has on the mu receptor. 
It inhibits this descending hyperalgesia pathway. And it also has a very, a very potent antidepressant effect. Huh. And I don't know if this is a good, a good time to reference the article. Yeah, that, do it. Uh, it uh, Andrew Herring, um, our fearless leader, one of them, our fearless leaders, was involved in a study that has been recently published. It is an excellent article, and it speaks to exactly what we're talking about today. And it has a great description of uh, ketamine's me- mechanism and uh, explanations as to why it works. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the dosing. So I feel like for myself as an emergency doctor, I'm very familiar with ketamine. We love ketamine. It works in so many different um, patient scenarios, in part because, like you said, it does work on the NMDA receptor, which is a receptor that we don't often, I would say, like use in in medicine. It's kind of a, a unique thing just sitting there waiting to be activated to be helpful in a lot of situations. So I think a lot of people are familiar with like the two milligram per kilogram IV sedation dose, right? Which is also a four milligrams per kilogram IM, intramuscular sedation dose. What kind of dosing are we talking about though in this situation in a precipitated withdrawal? What what dosing are we talking about? Uh, yeah, 0.3. Yeah, uh, and then, and that could be redosed uh, as needed. So you can do it with, you, you, usually you'll, you'll know within the hour or so it, it'll take a while for that drip to go in. And at the, at the same time, you can continue to add bup. Right. Right. So this is, it's, not a, it's not a serial process as much as it is a parallel process. Yeah. So there were some questions in the chat about that. So let's clarify. So we see the patient. We give the lorazepam. We give maybe 16 milligrams of buprenorphine. And are we still on the Q1 hour recheck for bup dosing? Is that still our schedule? Is every one hour? Um, well, if, if I feel like someone is in accelerated withdrawal or precipitated withdrawal in this case, which would be rare, as you mentioned, I'm checking on this patient every 30 minutes because my experience, I'll tell you right now, my experience is, um, these patients require lots of that verbicane. You have to continually be reassuring. And I'm telling you right now, as I will never know what it's like to be in that kind of withdrawal, right? right. And I, I would, you know, so these people are at high, high risk for elopement. And they really have to be talked, talked down and reassured, 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 reassured. Uh, so uh, often, um, you know, because of stigma, we often like to treat nurses sometimes will put them in a corner and just kind of go on. And, and then next thing you know, you go back to see them and they're gone. Right. So this is similar to what I think we often talk about with culture shifting and thinking about withdrawal is that this is a medical emergency. This is a person yes. in, yes. in an acute medical emergency. And especially if you're hitting precipitated withdrawal, if that really does happen, it is rare, just like all of the super high acuity other presentations, right? Every patient's not a code blue, but when they happen, they really need your attention. I think that's what I'm hearing from you is a true episode of precipitated withdrawal. This is a resuscitation. It's a bupcesitation, right? Like we're we're going to check on them every 15 to 30 minutes, keep going with the buprenorphine, Q 30 minutes until they're getting better. Don't be afraid of like 16 milligram doses on top of each other. And maybe adding that ketamine if the person really is sick and not doing well, um, place that IV, get that ketamine uh, going. You know, I find my, yes, exactly. And I find myself being more in the patient advocate zone when this happens, because I, I, I find myself having to spend a lot of time mobilizing 
the care team around this patient to say, this is what's going on. We need to keep eyes on this patient and you come and get me immediately if, if they start talking about wanting to leave, that kind of thing. Yeah. If, you don't, if I'm not proactive with that, like that, I often find that they, they will elope. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about methadone because this question comes up a lot. Okay. Um, I feel like every time people talk about precipitated withdrawal, they'll say, well, what if I ask the patient they use methadone? They say no, but they didn't know that they did or they did and they didn't want to tell me or whatever. Um, and I think I remember you telling me there was a case of a patient on methadone that that wanted to be in treatment and decided to start Suboxone at home. Um, and so that kind of launched them. And so talk to me a little bit about what to be worried about with methadone or how that might change any of this. Right. I'm going to go back to connection. Because I, I have I have learned in all my years that there's nobody more disappointed in this patient than themselves. So if I don't have that connection with them, then they're not going to be honest with me. And it takes a little extra time. And saying that within a busy emergency department is like uh, heretical because you know it's you want we we want to we got to move these patients in and out. So. If that happens and there, there is information that wasn't disclosed and they end up admitting to methadone, it really doesn't, the, the, the pathways, all, all roads converge to bup and more bup is the take home. Right. I mean, bup is, we know bup is stronger than methadone too, right? So if it happens and we now are seeing precipitated withdrawal, keep going. Exactly. And, and it, you know, if you, if, you, if you take the time to speak to patients overall and learn from them, you will, they will tell you that the methadone kick is far worse than a typical heroin or fentanyl kick. So they are going to be, you know, supremely um, miserable. And they might take a little bit extra of that verbicane to help keep them engaged and connected in their treatment. Yeah. There was a question in the chat about getting any pushback from pharmacy with higher doses of bup. Um, Gloria, for that question, I, I would say, of course, you're going to see that. That does happen. So part that's why we're always, always encouraging sites like to do education and include your pharmacy. Um, and then make sure that your clinicians are prepared to talk to that pharmacist on the phone and say, actually, I'm not doing regular withdrawal here. This is a resuscitation in a precipitated withdrawal patient. I, I know what I'm ordering and I do mean it. Um, and to have, be able to have that conversation is going to be really important. So education, you got to educate your way out of pushback most of the time. Yeah, I, and you, you should expect that because there are there are going to be multiple layers of um, of knowledge, and this is a cutting edge practice, right? Yeah. So we didn't used to give a lot of boop, so we didn't have yeah. precipitated withdrawal. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah, exactly, and and the, and the, and the drugs that are on the street, they're not your daddy's heroin, right? Right. And what I would also throw out there, though, I, I mean, we talked about this in the first session we did about precipitated withdrawal. But remember that, like, I just said that we didn't used to do this. We actually did. Remember that giving naloxone, giving Narcan, is precipitated withdrawal on purpose. That is what we're doing, is putting somebody into withdrawal. So in reality, we actually do know what this looks like. And it's not dangerous or life-threatening. It's just painful and horrible for the patient. And so what we're trying to do when these things happen is we're trying to get them comfortable and into treatment out of that. So, so I shouldn't have said that we never used to do it. What I meant was we didn't see it from starting treatment, right? That was different. Um, but I do want to throw out a case. So I actually had a case um, in my own network where I got a phone call and I wanted to talk it through with you because I think that this is way more common, uh, one of the more common examples also. So there was a woman, um, a 26-year-old pregnant female, actually. She was in her third trimester. 
Um, and she came in and was admitted to the hospital related to some pregnancy stuff. So it like wasn't for anything substance use related. And um, she uses fentanyl. It had been about 12 hours since her last use. And she started going into um, withdrawal, into having symptoms of withdrawal. And I will say like the obstetrics team, I think that sometimes they're they're not quite as adept at this um, as our emergency departments are. And so they felt very uncomfortable with buprenorphine. And so they called like a local expert and that person advised them to try microdosing. And they started her on these little bitty baby, like two and four milligram doses of buprenorphine. So over the past eight hours, she had not even received, I think, six total milligrams. Um, and now she's like agitated and angry and yeah. like a, and everyone's labeling her as non-compliant. And the CPS worker is literally going to be here in two hours to talk about custody issues because they know that she's screened positive on a drug test. Um, and everybody's yelling, she's in precipitated withdrawal because we gave buprenorphine. And so that's how I ended up on the phone. Was the, the substance use navigator called me and said, can you help me fix this? What is going on? And they were calling it, quote, microdosing, right? That's the term that we throw around. Tell me what's actually happening in the situation and what would you do? Okay, here's another bullet point. Microdosing equals underdosing. So having said that, now we're talking about, again, a person that's already an accelerated or, un, un, you know, precipitated withdrawal. So that, I, in, my, in my world, uh, that state of withdrawal, there's no, there's no room for microdosing, right? Again, we got to understand buprenorphine, we all know it has a higher affinity for the receptor, but it has a lower signal. So we have to saturate that brain. Uh, and, 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 you know, our, our OB colleagues mean well, but they've lived in the methadone era for a long time. And that's what was kind of the standard of care for OB. And we're, we've slowly been able to, to change that. But it's, it, it, once again, it's a high dose bup treatment. Right. And so this is not precipitated withdrawal. This is grossly undertreated withdrawal under the guise exactly. of, quote, microdosing. Sure. Yeah. And, and it's, safe for, it's safe in pregnancy. It's safe for baby. It's safe for lactation. And we have evidence that there's less, uh, results less in fetal abstinence syndrome. Right, right. So we know BUP is safe and effective, but we got to treat our pregnant patients the same way that we treat our normal patients and not be afraid of real doses of buprenorphine, right? So we've just been talking about how some of our patients with really high fentanyl use, um, you know, two and three gram use a day, they end up on like 32 to 64 milligrams daily. So you can imagine if you've got a patient in the hospital setting who's getting four milligrams, maybe eight milligrams over hours, that's not even close to being what that patient needs. And easily, I think because of fear and and what we hear, people will call that precipitated withdrawal. They'll be afraid of it, but that's not what it is. And this is actually a great example of what we see Way more often when someone says the word precipitated withdrawal, they're talking about a situation like this, where what they mean is the person is now just in really bad withdrawal and maybe they got some bup, so everyone assumed it precipitated, but really it's just getting worse on its own as if you gave nothing because it wasn't enough. So that's a really important take home, I think, from all right. of this. Right, right. And 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 and, and lastly, if I could add um, uh, Ativan, you know, feel free to add Ativan to that, that cocktail or that treatment plan. Yeah. And there's a question in here about like, but if it's only been 12 hours, what do I do? And again, the answer is you got to go with your patient. 
You got to look at your patient. How bad is their withdrawal? What's their cows? Right? We recommend eight um, or higher for that score to be able to start it. However, in fentanyl, what we've told you is wait a little longer, more like 10, 11, and with objective findings. And the patient we described to you, yeah, maybe their last fentanyl was 12 hours ago, but this woman is in withdrawal, right? She's in very clear withdrawal. Don't be afraid to treat the withdrawal. There's no timeline that's that's perfect, you know? And if I could remind everyone again, objective signs of withdrawal, objective, pupils, skin, sweat, tachycardia. Yeah, yeah, yeah sweat, exactly. tacky, dilated pupils, yeah, yeah. goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah. Don't score restlessness or anxiety or the subjective. So, yeah. yeah. In our, our closing minutes here, the last question I would ask you to share any advice for when you're counseling patients about self-starts. We just did a nice long uh, 30 minutes about self-starts, but if you're concerned about precipitated withdrawal or the patient's concerned about it, is there anything special you tell your patients when you counsel them about starting BUP on their own at home? Um, one question I've, I've found to be helpful for me is I will, as, again, in the spirit of this connection with the patient, have you ever gone into, have you ever put yourself into withdrawal uh, by mistake, in the past, by taking a, a street view, because you know you know it's out there, right? It is keeping people alive. Uh, but uh, and if they say yes, then I know that I'm preaching to the choir. Yeah. Um, and and I would and, and then I'll just walk them through the self start. There's a great self start uh, protocol on the California Bridge website. The resources that I'm looking at right now on the screen, and I'll sh- and I will often share that with with uh, with the patient. Yeah, perfect. So to recap our big take home points, and again on the screen here shows you how you get to our resources page where we have everything we've been putting in the chat for you. So feel free to go here and use any of this, including our newly released and improved version of the Quick Start Guide with some tips about fentanyl and dosing, how you might adjust it, and see this cute little box in the corner about how to treat precipitated withdrawal. We added that to our quick start guide because this is just a thing you should know about, but not fear. So remember that most, quote, precipitated withdrawal is not. It's undertreated withdrawal. Don't be afraid to give buprenorphine. If it is precipitated withdrawal, number one most important thing, connect with the patient. Be honest with them. Talk them through it. This is an emergency resuscitation. It's rare. It's a resuscitation. Give bup and more bup, and more bup every 30 minutes or so until the patient starts looking better. Don't be afraid of higher doses. Remember, it's not going to cause respiratory depression at the doses that we're talking about, but you monitor the patient, you watch them. Um, add that two milligram oral dose of lorazepam to help them get through it. And if it's not, if it's like taking a longer than you wanted it to and the patient's really agitated, consider a dose of ketamine, 0.3 milligrams per kilogram IV. There's also intramuscular and intranasal doses, which you can look up, um, but all of that's accessible to you. And as always, right, we always talk about this, connect with your patient. Like that is how we save lives is by changing culture and treating these patients as if they have a real emergency because they do. So I want to throw out the giantest thank you to Dr. Pilar for sharing his wisdom and experience with us and to all of you for being, it was such an engaging chat. I really appreciate all the comments and the the questions that were being asked in there. And hopefully we'll see you next time. If you need help, reach out to us. We're always here for you. Be safe, everybody. Thank you. Bye. That is it for today. 
If you want more on precipitated withdrawal, please check out our previous Emerging Trends training, where we spent even more time on this topic. But hopefully between that conversation and this one, you're realizing that precipitated withdrawal is really not very common. And instead, undertreated withdrawal is what has lots of our patients out there concerned about starting MAT, especially if they regularly use fentanyl. And heaven forbid you do end up precipitating withdrawal for your patient, you know the answer. Keep the communication going, build trust, and you guessed it, bup and more bup. And add a dose of lorazepam for good measure. If you want access to our new and improved buprenorphine quick start guide, which includes a summary of the treatment guidelines for precipitated withdrawal, or if you want any of the other clinical resources we have, like the fentanyl FAQ, please head to the resources page of our website at cabridge.org. Are you looking to hear more about fentanyl or anything that or substance use treatment related from our California Bridge team? You can access recordings from our previous trainings and see a full list of upcoming trainings at cabridge.org. Click on training. Other questions that we haven't answered yet? We're here for you. Connect with us through the California Bridge website or email us info at cabridge.org. Thank you again to Dr. Ed Pilar for sharing his wisdom and passion with us today, to Marco Gonzalez, our sound engineer for this episode, and to all of you. Thank you for being here and for doing this work with us. We'll see you next time. California Bridge is a program of the Public Health Institute, which promotes health, well-being, and quality of life for people throughout California, across the nation, and around the world. Copyright California Department of Healthcare Services.